Welcome to Borderlandia, the podcast where we embark on a journey to explore and celebrate the cultural heritage of the borderlands. I'm your host, Alex Lapierre, and I'm thrilled to have you join us on this immersive exploration of the rich tapestry that makes up our binational region. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Alex LaPierre. I'm one of the co-founders of Borderlandia, a binational organization committed to building a public understanding of the borderlands. Today, we're joined again by Dr. Jack Williams, and he is with the Center for Spanish Colonial Archaeology. And today's subject is a really fascinating subject that has to do with the history of northern New Spain. We're going to be talking about the Elizondo expedition uh, to the coast of Sonora in the 1760s. Jack, welcome. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And what do you think is really the, the main thing that people need to know about the Elizondo expedition? What is it? Who is Elizondo? And how did it happen? Well, basically, as the military situation in northern New Spain started to deteriorate with the starting really about the time of the so-called Great Pueblo uprising in the 1680s and 90s, there had been a pretty steady deterioration of uh, the Spanish military position in the north for decades. And virtually all the Indian groups that the Spanish had managed to missionize and brought in were either rebelling or thought to be cooperating with hostile groups. So the net effect of it all was that there was a pretty steady depopulation of places like Sonora, which at the time was mostly a, a mining frontier. So it was starting in the 17 yeah, in the 1750s, that you really start to see a suggestion uh, by a number of Spanish officials that are essentially the reason why the Spanish military situation is uh, not working is because there isn't a proper army fighting the Indians and that the presidial troops, who remember, were a form of militia, a fairly regularized militia after the uh, Reglamento of 1729, but a militia nonetheless, that they were inadequate. And so the idea was if they could just put together a really large force of trained regular soldiers, send them up under a well-trained military officer, they could once and forever defeat the Indians and then continue to dominate the region using this regular military force, which would in effect largely replaced the presidial soldiers as the backbone of the defense of, of the region. Now, the reason why the campaign was fought in the Cerro Prieto had to do with the fact that it was a pretty well-known retreat place for all the rebel Indians of Sonora. And of course, among these, the most dangerous in that specific region were the Seris. But the uh, Indian communities that existed in the, the Cerro Prieto included a pretty diverse array. Oodam and uh, Opata, really, really diverse cr crowd of, of Indians. And it was also because of the Galvez faction at court in Spain, there was a, an increasing interest in developing the frontier along uh, military reform lines that would have essentially seen the, um, the center of weight of the entire frontier would move to Sonora and that a capital would be eventually established there for a broad military command that would stretch from California, Alta California, all the way to Texas. So this whole plan eventually hinged on the idea of sending this expedition to the north and showing at the Cerro Prieto that they were an invincible force that would defeat any number of Indians and uh, once they had knocked off the Cerro Prieto, the idea was that they would continue to fight in the north, move over to Nueva Vizcaya, that is today's modern Chihuahua, more or less. And there they would defeat the Indians and this force then would just go marching forward and henceforth be the backbone of the uh, Spanish military. So Domingo Elizondo was an officer in uh, Regiment of Dragoons and 
Jose de Galvez, who was really the moving force behind the expedition, uh, was not a military man. He was an administrator, a banker, a lawyer, uh, but had no real military training. So he was the one that selected Domingo Elizondo to be the head of this expedition. And it eventually would, would involve several thousand people in a military force that was made up of a combination of regulars and of um, Presidio mounted troops and also of uh, native militiamen drawn from the missions. So it was a pretty diverse crowd of several thousand that eventually fought in the Cerro Prieto. Now, the big story of the Cerro Prieto is they tried this thing and they brought in this huge force of European style soldiers. And it turned out that they were a complete failure at defeating the Indians. So the campaign is one in which Domingo Elizondo and his forces basically learned the hard way that they can't easily defeat the Indians. And in, so in a weird way, it's a show of uh, the military talents and uh, techniques of um, people like uh, Juan Bautista de Anza, who commanded the, the Tubac troops in the campaign. And so in time, the campaign ends essentially with, after the major defeat of, in several battles in the Cerro Prieto, the uh, Presidio commanders and governors managed to persuade Galvez and Elizondo to switch over to, to fighting smaller actions and to pursue a, a policy really designed to not to, to meet the Indians and defeat them as much as it is to find their food sources and destroy them. And this strategy shows some success at ending the campaign. But in truth, the Indians were not all defeated and the Spaniards decided it was just too expensive to go on. So they declared victory and went home, even though they hadn't really achieved the military victory they expected to. So it was a turning point in the frontier and, and one of the few instances where a conventional military force was essentially used and that proved unreliable and a failure. And ultimately then the Presidios will survive. So by the end of the campaign, no one's talking about getting rid of the Presidios anymore. And so what we see is the regulation of 1772 and then the creation of the Provincias Internas in 1776, both of which essentially are designed to implement the same program. But ultimately this new program they come up with is to regularize the Presidio troops and turn them into regulars rather than bringing in regulars from the from the Spanish army in New Spain and sending them to the frontier to fight Indians because they didn't know what the hell they were doing and they they weren't going to achieve victory. And that was that was at the bottom line. So the the whole focus on the Presidios, which you see in books like Max Moorhead's account and um and you see in the Royal Regulation, that whole emphasis on building regularized bases with well-trained garrisons, uh, part-time soldiers, part-time colonists, that, that all is a product in a weird way of the failure of the, the Cerro Prieto campaign. So it was an important campaign, no question about it. And, and it did see some spectacular concentrations of troops and, uh, and some very bitter Indian fighting no question about it. So it was an important moment in the history of the frontier. Jack, could you um, talk a little bit about the the timeline and kind of the, you know, the, right before this expedition was the expulsion of the Jesuits. Can you kind of situate us in the setting and the time a little bit of this of this expedition? Well, it's important to, to remember that in many ways, this whole campaign revolves around Jose de Galvez. And Galvez was a man who had been sent to New Spain to reorganize the financial system of the kingdom, to expel the Jesuits, and to solve the defense problem in the North, which has been deteriorating for years. So Galvez got, of course, into uh, New Spain in the 1760s, the early 1760s. And he then set about reorganizing all of those things, including the expulsion of the Jesuits. He, he almost immediately started to think in terms of a military operation in the North. He had lots of correspondence with people like Bishop Tamaron, basically saying, this is how we have to go. And he came up with some very bold plans. One of his most bold plans was to seize Alta California. So his, his grand vision was to create 
what will become eventually the Provencius Internas. He wants to create a new kind of almost vice-regal sized entity in the north, which will stretch from California all the way over to Texas, and that this this program then will um, see these military this military expedition accomplish this purpose of conquering the area and, and, and establishing peace. I mean, that's kind of what is on the back burner in Galva's big grand vision. So California, the development of California, which was undertaken by a very tiny force and, and broken off from the Elizondo expedition, will have very obvious long-term effects and changing and down to the present modern state of California. But that event was, was part of Galva's wild ambition to seize California, even though the Spanish army was not capable of doing it on their own. That's why the missions remained important in Alta California. So in any event, Galvez is the one that, that's moving this. And he he sends Domingo Elizondo up to Wymas um, with a very large naval contingent. And they land with regular troops and they almost immediately start having military setbacks. And it takes literally a period from 1760 Seven, 1768 to, to put the operation in the field. Then they moved their headquarters over to Hermosillo to what was El Patique and used that as a base of operations then to launch the campaigns against the Cerro Prieto. And, and so all the fighting then took place around those events. And then when the expedition is withdrawn in um, 1770, it's at that point that we see another interesting member of the Galvez family. Uh, Jose had brought his nephew, who was about 20 years old, to come fight in this campaign. And that was, of course, the very famous Bernardo de Galvez. So Bernardo started his military career in the field of fighting Indians and in, his, in the field of the New World's military fighting in the uh, Cerro Prieto campaign. And so Jose fixes it so his nephew gets command of the military force that will remain in the north they're still going to keep and manage but um bernardo moves that force out of sonora over into chihuahua into nueva vizcaya where he will continue to um, operate offensively against the apaches and ultimately will lead a campaign that led to uh, southern new mexico so um before he's eventually withdrawn when a crazy Irishman named Hugo O'Connor, Hugh O'Connor, who had been a governor of Texas and a presidio commandant in what is today Louisiana and then what was in East Texas, he gets the call and he gets made the commandante inspector, working in close alliance with, with the new viceroy, Bucarelli. And, and, and then, so that begins the the period of the interior provinces, although the interior provinces, the provinces internas, remain a sub-command of the vice royalty until 1776, until Teodoro de Croix gets named Commandant General. O'Connor was only the Comandante Inspector. But the office of the commander of the Elizondo expedition then essentially went, when the expedition departed, the, the, the rank of that went to Bernardo de Galvez, who moved the command to Chihuahua, and he had a squad of uh, about 150, 200 men under his command there. They continue in the mission of sort of defeating the Indians, but in all honesty, find out fighting the Apaches is at least as hard as fighting the Seris and the Odom in the, in the Cerro Prieto. And um, he learns all about fighting Apaches, but he, he certainly doesn't achieve the kind of victory that was hoped for there either. And all of this helps to set up the necessity of the military reforms of the Presidio system, which characterized both Hugo O'Connor and Tiro de Croix's periods as, as commanders of the North. And that will really continue to dominate events until the Apache peace program emerges. And it's really not very dramatically apparent until like the 1790s, although the roots of that program can be traced back to the time period of Tierra de Croix. 
But in the end, they found it was easier to bribe the Indians to be at peace. Uh, Jack, could you also speak a little bit about the the Seri people, the Comcock? Who are they? Where do they live? And why were really they the kind of the object for this giant military expedition in, in the north? Well, the Seri were an enigmatic people to the Spaniards. Most of the native peoples they encountered in Sonora, and, and the Seri lived in the islands off the coast of Sonora and along the coastal areas and into the interior towards uh, Hermosillo, but were essentially a coastal people. Most of the Indians of Spanish Chincada were, were Indians like the Yaquis and the Opatas and the Odam, people that did agriculture and farm to a significant extent. The Seris, by contrast, lived almost exclusively by hunting and gathering. And they lived in an extremely brutal environment with very, very little to, uh, to base a, a, any kind of existence on. It was just a shortage of food and water. And the Seris were, by comparative standards, impoverished. And the Spanish started in the 18th century in a variety of attempts to create reducciones, which were mission communities where Indians would be brought together, taught farming, and to get that endeavor going. The, the Spanish tried repeatedly to do that. But the Seris were not very cooperative. And the Seris were extremely good at just leaving the missions and going out into the wild and surviving. And it turns out they were really tough for the Spaniards to, to fight because if you lead an expedition into the desert, one of the first things you learn as a Spanish military commander is you really face two enemies. The one enemy is the Indians often are out to get you, but then the desert itself will kill you faster than the Indians. And the Seris could survive on so little that when the Spanish would send out an expedition in pursuit, they frequently would end up wearing their horses out and ending up on foot, uh, just barely surviving to get home. Um, the water holes literally dried up and it was a, fighting the Seris was a, was a really tough business because you had to attack quickly. And even though the Seris didn't make much use of horses, catching the Seris was almost impossible. So it was a tricky business. Now, the other thing about the Seris that Spanish loathed was that the Seris were very big on using magic. And um, they had developed over the years a poisoning system for their arrows, which they used rattlesnake venom. And there's a number of formulas for it. But in any event, these poisoned arrows the Seris had um, were extremely feared by the Spanish. And they thought they felt that if you got hit by one of those arrows, you would almost certainly die no matter where it struck you. Now, I don't, I have never seen any evidence that there was any kind of sense of accuracy about that. I do think that it probably led to some terrible infections, but I'm not sure it was absolutely fatal to get hit by a Seri arrow. But that was a great fear of the Spanish soldiers that pitted against them. And um, the other thing you have to always remember is that the Spanish soldiers, in part, were motivated when they went out on these raids and expeditions by the idea that they were going to get something in the way of loot, just as the Indians did for that matter. In some cases, it was capturing back livestock. In other cases, it might be material possessions. But the Seris had almost nothing that the Spanish wanted. And so attacking the Seris and capturing one of their rancherias, one of their dispersed villages, didn't pay anything, so to speak. So the net effect of all this was that they were hard to beat, hard to find, of little value if you cornered them. And as prisoners, they were notoriously uncooperated. And um, you couldn't count on being able to like to enslave them and bring them back to work for you. So the, the overall effect was the Seris were a hard nut to crack. And I think what happened with the Seris was that they had initially been attracted to the missions. But when it became clear the missions could not protect them, against other Indian raiders, they just kind of said, well, the hell with the Spanish, and, and went out on their own. So I'm not sure their rebellions were all based upon just resistance to the Spaniards, but you have to remember the other great force that's appearing about this time are the Apaches. The Apaches are showing up and they're raiding further, further south. They're certainly raiding all the way to Alamos. And they don't just attack Spaniards or Iberians, they attack anybody including the other native peoples. So, you know, we often think about the Southwest as a region invaded and colonized by Europeans. 
And that is accurate. But it's also the case that it was a region at the same time being invaded and colonized by Indians off the plains, which included the Apaches. So, you know, you've got groups coming down and attacking them. And I think it's the Apache presence, which more than anything else, starting in the 1680s, is the undoing of the broad Spanish strategic situation. And the missions worked well as long as they could promise security. But once the missions were no longer offering any kind of meaningful security against Apache raids, why should the Indians try to continue to live there? That just made them easier targets for the Apaches. So in any event, the series rose up and then starting in the early 18th century, group after group of Indians, many of whom had been missionized, some of whom had not, all rebelled against the Spaniards. So the net effect of it all was all hell had broken loose. The mining frontier was evaporating. Literally the smaller reales de minas were disappearing. The Spanish who were raising cattle and developing farming to support those mining communities, they were getting wiped out. All hell was coming. And so that's what led to the desperation of mounting the Elizondo expedition. And by the way, the money that was used, and it was a very expensive operation, was raised by Jose de Galvez. So he, after putting up, putting down a minor rebellion in Guanajuato, had, had worked tirelessly raising the cash out of various guilds and, and organizations in central Mexico to put together the financial package that would make the expedition possible. Because he was under absolute orders that he was not to use royal treasury money from Spain. He had to do it with cash he could get in the Americas. And Galvez, even though he wasn't viceroy, in many ways had the power of the viceroy. In fact, in some ways outranked the viceroy. Now, what makes this all the more interesting and fascinating is that Jose de Galvez is arguably a genius, but he's also an unequivocal madman. And when I say madman, he had delusions that he would talk with Jesus Christ, St. Francis. He had visions of giants standing next to him that were telling him what to do. And he occasionally wrote things which are shocking, like in the middle of the Cerro Prieto campaign, one of the things he suggests is that they should replace the troops with apes from Gibraltar and that they would be able to defeat the Indians more effectively than the soldiers. And he wasn't being satirical. So this leads to a lot of interesting questions, one of which was how crazy was he when he developed the idea of the campaign? How crazy was he when he proposed to settle California with such a tiny military force? And in any event, it was his mental breakdown in the campaign that in many ways led to the abandonment of the effort. Elizondo was still quite capable. And for all the criticisms against the campaign, I don't know of anyone that attacked Elizondo's part in it. He seemed to be quite a reliable officer. But he was he worked very intimately with Galvez. And um, but I, I imagine this, you know, this the morning people get up and, and at the camp and at El Patique and 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 suddenly out, out of his out of his tent in his night clothes appears Jose de Galvez saying that Jesus Christ told them that they needed to, you know, send apes in to replace the soldiers to win this great victory. How did the men react and how did the other commanders react? It must have been an interesting question. But there's no question that Jose was a genius in some ways, but also mentally ill. Now, he got retired eventually back to Spain. And there was a lot of uh, court politics going on in in Madrid at the same time. There were two major factions. The one you could think of as sort of the foreigner, the foreigner sect. And, and that included people like uh, O'Connor, Alejandro O'Reilly, uh, who was governor of Louisiana, and also uh, Antonio Maria Bucarelli y Ursula, the, the viceroy, all those guys are sort of, they represent one faction. Uh, pitted against them was the Galvez faction. And the Galvez family, along with the Croix, represented two groups that fought together. And so what we can see in the borderlands during this period is Galvez really controlling and, and representing that interest in the Elizondo campaign that, that fails. You have Bucarelli coming to power, and then he selects Hugo O'Connor, his man, to replace, replace Bernardo de Galvez. And O'Connor continues for a while, but he's ultimately sacked after Bucarelli is out of the picture and replaced by Tito de Croix. 
And Qua really has a, a pretty independent hand in what he does on the frontier. But in any event, it's important to recognize that the politics of what were going on in court were really influencing all these events. So we often think about the frontier kind of in isolation, but really was directly tied back to Spain. The foreigner faction basically fell out of power because of a campaign in North Africa. Alejandro O'Reilly was put in charge of this huge expedition against Morocco that turned into a fiasco. And after his defeat, he never was able to rehabilitate himself at court. And though he, he wasn't court-martialed or anything, he was never given the power that he had previous to that. And it really brought an end to uh, the foreigner faction's influence in, in New Spain uh, because of that, those events. But it all had to do with Muslim peoples in North Africa, not what was going on in the Americas. It's quite interesting. But in any event, Galvez, Jose de Galvez was a fascinating figure for feature. And of course, he was, uh, he was the visitor general and in some ways the most important figure in the family. His nephew, Bernardo, was, uh, of course, very well known for after having fought the Apaches and retiring to Europe, he came back again. And then as commander of the expeditionary forces in Cuba that ultimately led to the defeat of the British at Pensacola. And he's, a, he's now recognized as a big hero of the American Revolution. He then ended up in Mexico City and was made viceroy. And as viceroy, he, uh, he and his wife became famous philanthropists and uh, were really making things better there. And he died at the unlikely early age in his early 30s, I think, when he passed away. He, got, he caught a, uh, a bug in Mexico City that killed, killed him. But then um, another one of his uncles, Matthias de Galvez, became viceroy and replaced him. But in any event, the Galvezes uh, were also cooked up to some extent, it looks like, with Freemasonry. And it's, it's, it all has to do with the politics of the Enlightenment. And I mean, it's, it's really interesting. But I think it is something that historians have yet to really explore, the, the dynamics of how the events in Spain and the politics of the Spanish court were influencing these frontier developments because people like Moorhead weren't much interested in that topic. Mark Santiago in his biography of O'Connor talks about it a little bit, but there's a lot more interesting stuff to be had there. And of course, the, if you're interested in the history of Jose, the great work about his life is really written by a Spaniard named Ramon Navarro Garcia, and it's called Jose de Galvez y las Provincias Internas. And um, most of that book is not focused on the period he spent in the Americas, but he became essentially chairman of the board of the Council of the Indies. So he had a huge effect on frontier policies throughout the later 18th century. And in Sevilla, there's an ungodly number of documents that relate to his period of, of running the Council of the Indies that is a goldmine of information about frontier military conditions and this whole the whole issues of campaigning. Very interesting man. And certainly one that has gotten recognition in recent years for being kind of a heroic figure. What I think very few people realize is that Bernardo not only had a part in Sonoran history, but he had a part in Chihuahua history and New Mexico history and also Texas history because he also campaigned in the El Paso region. So quite apart from his connections with the conquest of La Florida and the defeat of the English at Pensacola, he had a long and significant career fighting Indians in the Southwest, which has been almost entirely ignored by recent biographers. And Kieran, Kieran McCarty was the one that really turned me on to some of this stuff. And his dissertation was about the period in which the first Franciscans came, which of course they came in the company of this expedition. They literally were marching north to replace the Jesuits as part of the forces that Elizondo brought with him. And that led, led Kieran to find a lot of interesting stuff about these characters, because as one can imagine, they were just as flawed as modern populations are in terms of soldiers and things. So he found um, more than a few events which uh, pointed to their moral weaknesses and uh, fortitude, so to speak. Like one of the things he suggested to me was the reason that Gaspar de Portola who was also an, a Dragoon officer sent on the expedition. He was at various points, second or third in command. But the reason he was sent to be governor of California was because Domingo Elizondo and Jose de Galvez didn't trust him. And 
Gaspar de Portola was too high born to be gotten rid of. So they couldn't sack him. They couldn't court martial him. So they sent him to California to get him out of their hair. And in a similar way, the Vildosolas, who are another prominent Sonorenses family, you, you've got certain of the Vildosolas, like Gabriel Vildosola was a famous commander at Fronteras. I mean, he was a remarkable soldier. But one of the Vildosolas, Jose de, de Vildosola, was an absolute skunk. And he, he got caught in a card, in a card shark took him for his company's uniforms. So all his men lost their uniforms in the middle of the campaign because they were, uh, he put them up as part of a bet in a card game. And so you see, and, and of course, um, all during the Elizondo campaign, there is a steady correspondence between Galvez and Elizondo and between Elizondo and other crown officials that involve every aspect you can imagine of daily life in the campaign. So he's complaining about training. He's complaining about uniforms. One of the things he goes on and on about is that the, uh, the soldiers are often gambling their horses away. Too many of them don't have the discipline they need not to get drunk all the time. So it's a really interesting collection of things. And, and of course, some of the most vivid descriptions of Indian fighting I know are also penned by Domingo Elizondo. And uh, he talks about how the arms and equipment of the Spanish regulars was just not suited to Indian fighting. One of the, my favorite passages he wrote was that all of our swords break like brittle glass when we, when we use them up here because we need to use them to cut and hack the cactus down to get through. And he generally said, all these horses, there's too many horses. We need to use fewer horses. And people on foot are practically useless chasing like the Ceres. So, for example, the Catalonian volunteers, he had them mounted on mules so that they could be used in, in offensive operations. So it was, it, was a, it was a classic example of a misappropriated technology. In fact, one could argue that the entire military reforms of the late 18th century were in many ways misguided because ultimately they were all based on observations of warfare in Europe, not actual Indian fighting. So whether we're talking about the plan to have these sort of modern fortress presidios or to bring regular troops in to dominate the battlefield, both of those ideas were, were misapplied. And it is also the case that the Cerro Prieto campaign is, is one of the ones in which people like Juan Bautista de Anza are able to show their talents at fighting what the Spanish called at the time the, the, the guerrillas, the little wars. And the, uh, they also call about the Guerra de, de los Duendes, the spirit war. And what they were talking about was chasing Indians out in the desert where there will be no big battles. It's all you know, a matter of catching the Indians, usually when they're not prepared, and then killing them or destroying them or capturing them. And so um, you see that kind of Indian fighting becomes, by the end of the Cerro Prado campaign, Elizondo is saying, yeah, that's the way we're going to have to beat them. And if you think about it, in many ways, this parallels the experience of the United States military in fighting the Apaches in the 19th century, which was in the end, it was, it was far more effective to deny the Indians access to food and water than it was to catch them and defeat them in a pitched battle. So um, I think in a weird way, the Spanish were learning the lessons that the U.S. Army later learned in the Elizondo campaign. There were other fiascos too. One, one famous one, I think it was Governor Pineda. He was so fat that when he got on his horse, he fell off of it in the middle of the campaign. And then of course, in one of the most spectacular battles, the one that was fought at the Cañada de las Palmas, the Spanish inadvertently shot at themselves and took serious casualties from friendly fire. And it was very, the Spanish kept coming up with different formulas of moving the troops around as if it were a chess game. But the board they were fighting on, the Cerro Prieto, is a lot more complicated than a chessboard. And the Indians understood how to use the terrain. And the, you know, the Cerro Prieto itself was a fortress built by God, which had no easy way to capture. Um, you see in the notes of the campaign that there were certain pinnacles and peaks that the Spanish could see the Indians on, but they couldn't figure out how to get up there to fight them. 
And, and so the, these kind of retreat fortifications were very much a part of the terrain and landscape of the North. And you see that in the, in the American period in things like Cochise Stronghold. But those kind of refuge, refugios are sometimes called refuge forts, which are also described by Ignaz Pfefferkorn, the famous Jesuit, as, as kind of a place to retreat to, are very characteristic of this kind of warfare. Um, the Indians basically were allowing nature to create the fortresses they used rather than man-built fortifications. And if anything, they were, they were impossible for the Spanish to, to easily defeat. And um, someone like Anza, their approach to fighting in the Cerro Prieto would be to get as close as they could to the enemy and then to bring up auxiliary Native Americans, largely mission militias, and, and then send them in because the Spanish were very ill-suited to fighting on foot. And you can't stay mounted in the kind of terrain we're talking about in the Cerro Prieto. You're going to fall off your horse or you're going to end up in, in one form of trouble or the other. So you have to be able to fight on foot to win those battles. Jack, what can you tell us about the documentary record on the expedition? I know that in the AGI, there's this amazing maps of the Cerro Prieto campaign. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, what, what happened, of course, was this was a big official campaign. So there was a huge stream of documents created by Elizondo, other field commanders, and by Jose de Galvez. And these documents still exist in both the National Archives of Mexico at AGN in Mexico City and at AGI, which is the Archive of the Indies in Sevilla. And so there's an ungodly number of documents. Now, the actual narrative of the uh, events was first published a few years after the campaign was over with Elizondo's name, which is the official narrative of the campaign. Uh, but that's what it is. It's not a very accurate, I think, document. But nonetheless, the level of interest in what had happened was, was quite intense. And so these documents, which we're talking about many linear feet of archival materials. It's a huge amount of material. I've seen only a small part of it. The first person that really got a chance to study it was one of Chapman's students, a man named Roland, who wrote his dissertation at Berkeley on the Elizondo campaign. And to my mind, that remains the best single study on the subject. It was never published, but it is widely available on microfilm. And the Elizondo campaign, because it involves so many different troops and lots of regulars and ships, and, you know, the whole little side episode of the expedition to California has been the subject of, you know, huge books by people like Chapman. All you can say is that the, the information about the campaign has barely been put together by anybody. And so it's one of those wonderful events that is extremely well documented that deserves a lot more attention by graduate students and things like that. Because there's a lot, there's a lot there that hasn't been looked at. Now, part of it is simply that there's, you know, if it had happened in Arizona, there would have been a lot of people interested in it. But because it's in central Sonora, there have been less numbers of people that were interested in it. And, and so in some ways, the whole Elizondo expedition, and it's important, has been eclipsed by an accident of modern geography, which had nothing to do with the events. But in reality, it did affect not only northern Mexico, but huge areas of what is today the United States. Uh, were influenced by the events of that campaign. So it was no small event by any measure. It was one of the cataclysmic events. And it really does represent a turning point. And I think the, the fundamental turning point is that it points to is the shift away from a focus on missionaries and um, persuading Indians to live in mission communities, which had really been developed by the Habsburgs. This is really in its terminal phases by the point that, that Galvez gets involved, Jose Galvez gets involved. And you see that on the one hand in pulling the Jesuits out of the frontier, and at the same time then pushing the army up. And ultimately, the direction it'll go in is modernizing and professionalizing the Presidio garrisons. But at the start of the Elizondo campaign, I think the, the apparent thing that was going to happen was that the, um, the Spanish regular army was going to take over leadership and dominate the region. And of course, this battle between the missionaries, who in many ways represented a kind of antique institutional framework, the battle between those missionaries and the army 
will remain to the end of the colonial period. And in the case of Alta California, beyond. But the, um, the missionaries will never have the power they once had in determining Native American relations after Jose de Galvez and his inspection. They'll never return to that, that level of control. And, and people like Junipero Serra will be very deeply involved with the battle over who controls the frontier. And there are various periods in which it seems more obvious that the army does, and then in some places the missionaries continue to rule to some extent. But it, it reaches in many ways its pinnacle under Tiro de Croix, who was deeply dedicated to secularizing the frontier and transitioning it to a purely military government, essentially putting the entire region under martial law. After him, those events don't ever come to complete fulfillment. And we see sporadically missions continue in places like Arizona and, and Sonora, but on a smaller scale than they had existed under the Jesuits. And of course, you have the blossoming, ironically, of California. Um, the only reason the Franciscans got sent to California, I think, was because Galvez recognized he didn't have the money to really sustain the army in California. Their only hope was to get self-sustaining communities of missions that could support the army. That was the purpose of bringing the missions in. Of course, Sarah himself was very deeply devoted to the idea of transforming the Indians into Christians, but I'm not so sure that either Galvez or the Spanish crown really cared about it at all. They were much more interested in militarily conquering and holding the region. And uh, we see this change in policy where the army, and uh, I remember having long discussions with Charlie Polzer about this years ago, who was a fairly well-known, prominent Jesuit historian. And he said, well, it was as if Spain had always held the cross in the right hand and the sword in the left hand. And it was always the cross that came first under the Habsburgs. And the Habsburg rule really ended in about 1700, the last Habsburg king. And then in the 18th century, they were reversed. So the sword went into the right hand and the cross was held in the left hand. And everything was determined by the military. And I think that is a fair way of looking at it. It wasn't that they got rid of all missionary activity, but it was just way less important. So when we look at colonial history in its broadest terms, we go from talking primarily about missions, figures like um, Kino, to military men like O'Connor and uh, Tiro de Croix and Juan Batista de Anza in the later period. And that turning point really transformed on the fulcrum of the Cerro Prieto campaign. And it, it is more than ironic, too, that the fundamental lesson of the campaign, which was that European-style warfare doesn't work too well fighting Indians, was not comprehensively understood by the Spaniards. So they will continue to try to adjust their ideas to having a military establishment that would be able to conduct these campaigns successfully in the North. But they, it's, it's always elusive. The idea of what they want to have is a, a grand battle in which their expeditionary forces will wipe out the Indians and then the Indians will be conquered and subjugated and live under the shadow of Spanish military might. But the Southwest as a whole remains a contested land. And in particularly the, the frontiers with the Comanches and the Apaches, it is far from clear that the Spanish were ruling supreme. So we see places like Tucson, Santa Fe, San Antonio, all developing in an extraordinarily unstable world where on the one hand, we have a strong Spanish ability to hold the land at the one place where they're centered, like Tucson or San Antonio, but an incapacity to extend their control out over the surrounding regions. So it's not really clear that the Spanish controlled, for example, Southern Arizona in the late colonial period. I think one could argue the Apaches controlled it as much as the Spaniards did. And all across the frontier, that's the case. So in the big picture, this idea of using military might to crush the Indians just didn't work. But it was a glorious event and was quite spectacular. So it's well remembered today. But that lesson, it's kind of funny because when you look at modern interpretations of the period, you know, with reenactors and things, they, you know, they, they often have missed the big picture, which was for all their abilities, the Spanish army 
was ultimately not up to defeating the Apaches or the Comanches. Those guys won the war and would continue winning the war until the U.S. Army gets involved. And the U.S. Army defeats them using far more sophisticated technology with far greater numbers of troops and ultimately use the same tactics that the Spanish had, had, had used, which was to deny them a place to get food or water. And that is, in the end, how the Apache Wars end in, in, in southern Arizona. It's not because the Indians have lost the will to fight, or if they could get their minimal amounts of supplies, they could have gone on fighting forever. But um, the U.S. Army is able to strategically deny them that. But the circumstances had certainly changed by the time we're talking about the Victorian colonial frontier of the United States versus what the Spaniards were able to do in the 18th century. Very different. But uh, it, it is a particularly, the Elizondo campaign is particularly interesting, partly because of the diversity of uh, troops that were there, regular light infantry, the regiment of the Americas was there, which were regular uh, line infantry. The Dragones de España and the Dragones de Mexico, which were both elite vice regal guard units, <clears throat> which Elizondo was, a, you know, a ranking officer of. So it's an it's an interesting crowd, and because they were interesting, literate people, they left us like ungodly number of records of what they were doing. Like I said, you could spend the rest of your career simply reading Elizondo expedition papers. There, there's tons of them. And, and because they haven't been a subject of great interest to us, the scholars, a lot of them are untouched in terms of the details they, they include. Now, that map of the Cerro Prieto that you're talking about was made by, guess who? Jose de Urrutia, our friend that made the Tubac map, also made that map. And it's really interesting if you look at that map, you'll see he, he covered it with the same kind of embellishments as the Tubac map. But the bottom line of it all is that among the other professional soldiers brought to El Patik were a whole corps of engineers who were, were there to design fortifications and to uh, record maps and things. So it was an important moment in the civil engineering history of the region as well. But it, it was a great, interesting expedition. There's no doubt about it. You know, there's one thing I want to ask you about because uh, you mentioned it, kind of this interesting concept of Seri or the Comcock Nation and their use of magic and also poison, basically kind of a bio-warfare, biological warfare against the, the Spanish. I've read that the first commander at the Tibac Presidio, um, Tomas de Valderrein, basically died from a wound, a poisonous-tipped arrow wound from the Seri campaigns. Is, is that correct or... Have you heard about something similar like that? Well, I, I think it's hard to say if he died of that specific cause or he just died of an arrow wound. But there's no question that the Seris used poisoned arrows. The Apaches did to a limited extent, too. And my impression is that the formula for the poison would significantly involve rattlesnake venom. But my guess is that the Spanish were more afraid of the poisoned arrows than they you know, got struck once in the hand and dropped dead from it. Now, you have to understand that the dynamics of fighting in a battle where people are using archery is really different from one where you're using guns because the the wound power of, a, of an arrow is, is very much less than the wound power of a firearm. Now, for example, if you're hunting like deer and you shoot a musket, even one that might not be too accurate, but you manage to luckily hit the deer, the deer is most likely going to fall to the ground. Because wherever you hit the deer, it does huge damage, and it creates a trauma. And, and um, literally, animals and people, when they're struck by bullets, especially the large caliber bar, balls we're talking about, go into shock. And, um, but you can get shot with arrows a lot in coupon fighting. In one battle, I remember... It was fought not very far from Arispe. Don Garate had, an, had a letter. Uh, he was a historian that worked for the Park Service many years. He had a letter from Anza where I think he was accounted to have been shot 14 times with arrows in the battle. So I suspect his shield and his body armor, his cuera, were full of arrows. But none of them stopped him from fighting. You can get shot with arrows many times and go on fighting. And in the same way, if you shoot a deer with an arrow, you might have to chase the deer for 24 hours before it drops over 
from loss of blood. Now, this was a subject that became very great interest during the Civil War and in Indian fighting in the Southwest by the U.S. Army. So they actually did tests of wound power, and they showed how dramatically different the consequences are of getting hit with a bullet compared to an arrow. They also demonstrated the incredible power of the Apaches, bows. Indian bows varied. For example, the Seris used a simple bow, which is to say it was a piece of wood, which they strung and put in, in shape using heat, but then it was just a piece of wood, basically. But the Apaches used composite bows made up of horn, sinew, wood, and were many times as powerful as a Seri bow. And the power of an Apache arrow is truly devastating. One of the things the armies did was they had Apache archers shoot. Of course, and the Apaches were using steel-tipped arrows because they could get the steel from um, the Europeans that were in the region and they hammered them into arrowheads. That sucker went like an inch through a pine door, came out the other side. So the power of an Apache arrow is much greater than the power. And as a consequence, the range of an Apache arrow is much greater than that of a Seri arrow or a Opata arrow. Most of the Indians in the Southwest didn't have the weapons technology to produce elaborate bows and arrows, but the Apaches did. And they were extremely devastating as a result. But they, like Europeans, preferred to hunt using guns, not because arrows were impractical in the sense that they, they weren't available and, and, and plentiful, but because the wound power of a firearm is, is so devastating that it'll bring down, like hunting, you're much better off hunting with a gun than you are a bow and arrow. You're just going to take down the animals quicker. And if you've actually spent time with hunters, there's a famous anthropological film about the Kung Bushmen, and they shoot a giraffe, and they chase the giraffe then for like four days, waiting for it to fall, fall over. And finally, the giraffe falls over, but it turned out that later on, the documentary makers admitted that they shot the giraffe because they got tired of chasing it too. And then one bullet brought the giraffe down, but shooting it with arrows many times, the giraffe just kept going. And, and that's the truth of, of arrow wounds, is they rarely have the impact and power that a bullet does. You had to learn that the hard way. Jack, thank you so much for this. We're almost at the hour mark currently, but is there any kind of last minute takeaways that you think that people, that listeners to this program should leave with the impact and the significance of the Elizondo expedition to the history of Northern Mexico and the Southwest of the United States? I think the most important idea was that it was a turning point and it was definitely an interesting event that hasn't been studied as much as it can be. So especially anyone that's inclined to want to read Spanish colonial documents, there's a treasure house of information about the campaign, which has never seen the light of day. Awesome, Jack. Well, thank you so much. Just every week, this podcast just keeps getting better and better. And so I look forward to talking to you next week on the next subject. I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us for this podcast by Borderlandia. And we'll see you next week. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. You can find more information by visiting us at borderlandia.org. We are a binational organization committed to building public understanding of the borderlands. Thank you.